Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Mission Impossible 2 is over. You keep calling me Dimitri. You really shouldn't. The mother of all nightmares is on the loose. I don't think I can do it. I mean, it'll be difficult. Very. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult to be a walk in the park for you. You gotta be kidding. Message will destruct in five seconds. We are talking about Mission Impossible 2. Welcome to Mission Impossible 2. This is the second in the Mission Impossible franchise film franchise, which we began talking about last week. And we're really excited to talk about it because I think you'll find that this is our favorite movie in the franchise. And it's all downhill from here. Are you here? Are you are you present today? Are you just that excited to talk about this movie? <laughs> it's um well, you know, I, I don't know. My brain was going to just the the start of of title confusion in this franchise because the first film, I mean, Mission Impossible, the second film, it really isn't start, title confusion. I suppose it's the next film where it gets a little confusing cuz this film is um Mission Impossible and then it's the number 2. The next film is when we start playing with Roman numerals, and then we drop it for names of each of the films. So, yeah, it's interesting. The titling between two and three ends up getting so messed up. But I guess largely that's because the fantastic design work that you can do with an M and a Roman numeral three and how they look very similar. And so they were just looking for kind of the aesthetic of how the title looked rather than actually consistency. But it is what it is. This is Mission Impossible 2, John Woo's film, where talking about the titling is more interesting than the film itself. <laughs> this, is that fair to say? <laughs> this movie. No. I, and, and in all fairness, there is certainly stuff to talk about in this movie. First of all, it's a, it's a disease movie. Uh, it, and uh, it's, a, it's a potential disease apocalypse movie. So that's there. It's at least present. Uh, there are some uh, slightly scary moments of disease injection stuff. Don't love those air injectors. Don't care of that. There's more masks. There's more masks. <laughs> There's just a lot of masks. 
uh, which is fun. And I think what is so what is great about uh, this movie is, you know, we talked a little bit. I I made the the point that last week was more of a spy movie, right? It was more of an espionage thriller for Tom Cruise. And this movie is where we start the transition into it being a action vehicle for Tom Cruise. And there's still espionage, like covert stuff. But this is where the stunts start taking precedent in sense memory over the movie itself. That becomes true uh, for the next several movies, where I remember principal stunts, because they're so glorious, might have a hard time telling you what the movie's about. And not just the stunts, which I, I suppose in the scope of that, it really boils down to it becoming the James Bond type of spy movie as opposed to a covert espionage type of spy movie, like a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy sort of movie. Um, and the first one, it, it definitely had, I mean, it still is an action film, obviously, but there was a little bit more of that kind of covert spy work in the first film that. I mean, I think by the time we get to, I mean, it really is only the first film, because once we get to this film, like you said, that's completely dropped. And we are just left with an action spy film. And it's not, it's like he's a spy, but really it's just like, this feels so much like a James Bond film. Like he's going on this mission to stop this villain. I mean, kind of like Goldeneye, a former person who worked within his same organization yeah. and is creating this uh, or is is getting ready to um, buy this virus that can potentially wipe out the population and all this sort of stuff. It sounds like such a big scope for what we're doing with these films. And um, not that the other ones don't, but it's just like this is kind of that corner that has now been officially turned. Yeah, I think so. And And it gets more complicated because... It introduces John Woo, <laughs> it introduces John Woo as the director um, into the MI, uh, MI, the MI franchise, MI, M colon I space franchise. I, I was watching this movie with uh, some of my family and some of the stunts that come up, they, they, this is actually my, my daughter made this, this point. She says, it feels like this movie is no, lo- is no longer in a universe in which we all live. Like, this is now in a fantasy universe. Not like the first movie felt like it's it's in a universe that is ours, if not directly adjacent to ours, right? It's this place where all of these things could happen. Like, if you can set your yourself into the space where there are spies chasing each other around and they blow up fish tanks and, you know, all of that. So with the exception of maybe the final sequence when the helicopter flies into the channel, maybe. But it's a big action sequence that feels like it's a thing. And in this movie, and the comment came up particularly when the motorcycles are doing the joust sequence at the end when Ethan and Ambrose are riding at each other and they it's not even that they leap, it's that they are lifted off the motorcycles in motion, and it feels like we're in a wuxia film all of a sudden. And that is so John Woo to me. And that's what my my daughter said. This feels like I'm watching a movie that couldn't happen because I have to be in a different universe to be able to enjoy what this movie is. And that's not what Mission Impossible was really about. So I, I thought that was interesting. I thought that was an interesting commentary, that the stuff I showed up for you know, if, if if my head was in a different place, maybe I could find a lot more love for this movie. Well, there is an interesting element with the first, you could almost say the first five 
Mission Impossible films because in every case they're bringing on a different team to to kind of lead the charge, right? We have a different director each time and it just like different villains, different I, I can't say different love interests, but we're certainly like at this point it certainly feels like He's pushing more for a James Bond, like I, I keep saying, but that same type of film where it's like there's going to be a different lover in every movie. And uh, we're going to bring in, you know, in this case, it's so far it's a different director each time. And we're going, going for a different feel, but it's all going to be the same character, Ethan Hunt, as he goes on these different missions. But it almost feels like their goal at this point in time was to find a different person to helm it so that we could have a different vibe. And it's it really kind of... We get that all the way until Rogue Nation, when suddenly it's like there was this click between uh, Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie, where they said, oh, this is what we've been wanting to do all along. Let's just keep doing this the rest of the time. Yes. And so I, I think that that's such an interesting element within this franchise, is it's different voices for so long until we kind of hit just after that midway point in like the last back half of it is essentially a whole uh, thing on its own. And so there is something interesting about what they were wanting to do at this point in time. I just think the biggest issue that I have uh, that John Woo brings, I mean, it's not so much that kind of that wuxia sort of stuff of flying off the motorbikes, which certainly is there. And it does have some of the issues that I struggle with, with this film, but it's that John Woo really wanted to not just make this an action thriller, but to make it a romance action thriller. And we really amplify this romance between Ethan Hunt and uh, Tendiwe Newton's character, Naya. I don't know. It's just, it becomes so frustrating because the moment he, he sees her and she sees him across the flamenco floor when they're in Spain, it's like love at first sight sort of thing that they were going for. And I'm just like, I don't know. I just struggle buying that in one of these films. And I think after this film, once we kind of are introduced to Ethan's uh, marriage and his story with Michelle Monaghan's character, there's a more interesting line that we get with him. And like, this is the point in the film where I think they were experimenting with different things and they thought, let's try the romance angle and go a little bit more of that suave spy sort of thing. And it just, it, it falls really flat. And it, for me, those elements of the film just bring it down and it just makes it so much less interesting because of that uh, romance that it really is, they try to develop with Naya throughout this film. And I just feel like it just, it feels like they're pushing just to have it there because I never buy it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I, I mean, never once. And I, it never is it made more awkward than when they're in the bathtub sequence. Like, first of all, let's let's talk about why we'd put a safe where it is located in the with the proximity to the bathtub. That was weird. But the that whole exchange and, and I one of the, the stories that that, you know, kind of is is floating around in, in many of the talks about this is that, you know, Tom Cruise was really frustrated with the dialogue here. And it's. It's mostly positioned in a way that uh, Tandiwe Newton was struggling with her relationship with Cruz and the film and uh, had some real trouble with it being, a, a you know, in some way, a toxic set. I, I don't know uh, about that, but I know that Cruz said 
um, you know, I, I'm really having trouble with this because, you know, she, Tandiwe Newton's character, has such, you know, terrible dialogue. And he's not wrong. It is written so awkwardly. Uh, there, anything that is between the two of them is so awkward that I, I never get over the hump to believe that it's a plausible relationship. And then the echoes of it are felt in every sequence where Tom Cruise is talking about her with somebody else. So when she is talking to Anthony Hopkins about, no, I can't make her do that. How could he possibly not make her do that? He's known her for a, a couple of days, maybe yeah, at this point. Right. Like, how could he possibly feel so strongly about his relationship with her. It's just a case that is never made authentically. It's never made believable. Yeah, the primary uh, point of conflict between Newton and Cruz, not necessarily conflict between them, but just the, the biggest struggle that it seemed that they were having on set was the scene when they were shooting that balcony scene when he was yeah. uh, trying to convince her to go do all of this stuff, to go back in there and return to Ambrose all that stuff and and just like you know him screaming at her and just like that whole thing was so ridiculous and um and he was stressed because he wanted the sequel to be good he thought that she, her lines were terrible she was having a di very difficult time with the lines and uh, you know they were trying everything they could and it just seemed to be making it worse and worse and worse and more uncomfortable for for her and she just really hated it and she actually said later you know she said bless him speaking about tom cruise and i really do mean bless him because he was trying his damnedest and i think that's uh there's an interesting element there that, you know as the producer trying to figure out how to make this thing work and then as the actor having to struggle through it just like she was and both of them being incredibly frustrated by the entire experience. And I don't know if that necessarily falls to John Woo. I mean, who had directed, this is what, I think his fifth English language film. So it's not like he was new to working in, in the Hollywood system by this point. Um, Robert Town had worked on the first film, which, you know, arguably also had some script issues and everything. But again, I think it falls to the nature of this love story that they were really trying to inject into this thing, which was something that John Woo did want to include. And I just feel it made this script really struggle to to become something more than it should have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really it. And it, the, the romance, the, the bigger, <laughs> the bigger struggle that I have with the romance is that it makes parts of the movie really boring and, and just hard to hard to get through like it takes it, it 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 was a it was a reach to watch this film in a single viewing and continue pay atten paying attention to it beyond the big set pieces because i just it's such a snooze uh, i wanted to pick up my phone and just <laughs> do something else play threes for a lot of the movie waiting for big sequences to happen so it's rough well and and in you know it's interesting because the you know we were talking about how the Mission Impossible first film really kind of had some of that, the espionage side of it. And here, mm -hmm. just thinking about big action sequences, I mean, obviously we have the opening, which is fantastic, of, of Ethan Hunt, um, you know, free solo climbing 
in uh, Dead Horse Point State Park, um, which is a fantastic location. If you ever ch- have a chance to go there, it's beautiful. It's the it's used a lot for big canyon sort of places. Like that's where they filmed, uh, which we talked about in a member bonus episode about Thelma and Louise. That's where they filmed it as Grand Canyon for their uh, final scene there. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, part of the world. Um, but anyway, that whole thing, like the fantastic open. And of course, you know, you get the mask work and the spy stuff at the beginning with uh, Doug Ray Scott playing Tom Cruise. So we're already getting some interesting things there. But then you're thinking like, okay, what's the next big action sequence? Um, I guess it's breaking into the safe. Is that the next big action sequence? It's it's like, okay, uh, not very exciting. And then and not necessarily action sequence, but like the big sequences, the set pieces. And then it's the horse races. To steal yeah. the what photos, is that? it's like right. okay, and then uh, so really, it just it ends up being the the well. There's the break in into the pharmaceutical company that's developing the um, the drug or the um, vaccine or not the vaccine. There, it's the um, it's the actual virus, and mm-hmm. then the all the stuff at the end. And so it feels like they're missing out on having the 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 big action set pieces. And, and so I, even just like the development of the story, it feels like, okay, we don't really know what we're doing. Let's just, we'll just make this kind of like, it just, I don't know. It just feels uh, less thought out. And even the action set pieces, like when we see the break into uh bio site, it's like, Oh, okay. So we're going to do what we did in the first film, but we're just going to make it bigger. Yeah. There was, there was a driving scene. I'm, uh, you know, in the beginning, yeah. where they after they meet, and that it, there's so much like slow motion, hair, wind blowing, hair twisty, twisty. Like it's there's some intense, you know, photography of them, you know, uh, teasing their way around these cliff cliffside roads, which is which is fine. It's good. But how do but cars? It, how do two cars spin around each other as long as those two do? Like that was just I like, don't know. So and artificial. They're going the same direction. Like they're they're parallel to one another there's no reason for them to be turning that way in my head i can't make it work if they had slammed into each other in opposite directions i can kind of make sense of it but i can't make sense of it it's car wusha it is car wusha that's exactly what it was (laughs) and uh and because of its uh, of its dramatic romantic slow motion hair blowing stuff uh i it doesn't feel it doesn't clock as a as an action sequence for me no and what's interesting is like this film, in so many ways, I compare to uh, probably something like, uh, I mean, I already brought it up, but GoldenEye, um, because like I feel like there are just some of those driving sequences with Bond like racing around some of the, the hillside. I think it's that one, or it might be one of the other ones, but it just, it plays kind of lethargically, like, I'm so cool, I'm going to drive <laughs> so cool, and that's what we're getting here. It's like, there's nothing exciting about it, it's just driving we're just seeing stunt driving and it's not very exciting. It's supposed to be romantic, I guess, is the the way it is. I mean, by the time yeah. he saves her, I mean, they're practically making out while the car's dangling off cliffside. It's so peculiar. And on top of it, and this is why I jumped to Goldeneye, because Hans Zimmer's score in this is so bad. It's like this is just some of his worst music that he's done. It's just <laughs> limp and it just it feels of its era in the crappiest of ways. And I just, I can't stand listening to the music for this film. And and like that, that to me, like that sequence as the music is playing through that driving, it's just like, it's just, I'm like, what are you trying to do here? Ugh, just don't like it. Only because you said it. Speaking of limp, 
Limp Biscuit does the uh, contemporary take <laughs> on the Mission Impossible uh, theme. I don't necessarily even have an opinion on on Limp Biscuit's work here. It's it is what it is. I, I think that's I think that's the real problem is that I feel like every every scene between those two is meant to be as fluid as their sort of as their emotions are right with one another and so their moves in the bathtub their moves in the hallway their moves running their moves then driving um they're all supposed to be this sort of fluid uh romantic uh waves of motion and i it doesn't i mean that's it's a stylistic choice that doesn't play for me. Well, and it plays very Bond-ish also. Just speaking of kind of the old style of James Bond, but like when you have Tom Cruise lying on the the bottom of the bathtub and she's straddling him, practically straddling his face, and he's just looking up like, hey, I'm just enjoying it. Yeah. And you put me here. And the shot, the camera shot is, I mean, and Tendiwe is a very attractive woman, but it's just, it's so overtly looming over her low-cut dress as we're like looking right, right, practically down uh, between her breasts, it's just like, all right, it's being a little uh, sleazy the way that this is being put together. Like it's not even sexy; it's just kind of trashy. Well, it is, and I don't get the what they're trying to show us. Besides her cleavage, are they are they showing us that she's such a competent thief that she doesn't care about you know other people ogling her in bathtubs? Is that, I mean, is that the character motivation, like, for her not to make any, like, are you, she's so wound up in the adrenal, like, excitement of stealing stuff and cracking safes that she doesn't care? Is that what we're supposed to, th- I, I just don't know what we're supposed to get out of it. Well, and also, that that whole sequence is placed in such a frustrating way because, okay, I get it. He got to the room somehow. I don't know how he got in there so quietly and quickly, but he's there as she's getting ready to break into the safe. They go through this whole process, and he's like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Like, kind of like, he practically knows more than she does through the whole thing. And, it's, and she's supposed to be this, like, expert thief. And so... It's playing a way where it's like, well, okay, but now he knows everything more than she does. And then, as it turns out, by the time we get to the 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 payoff for that sequence, he has somehow infiltrated himself into working as the security advisor for this guy and is the one responsible for the safe and all of this. It's like, what? how he just put this plan together. How is somehow he's now actually working for this guy? It just like that whole thing played in such a ridiculous way as just a setup to get her into the story. Yeah, I, I think so too. I, I think that's the, that was the extent of it. And uh, the fact that she has no other significant connection than to uh, be the romantic interest because she had a prior relationship with Ambrose, I found underwhelming too, right? That justification that we get such a, the setup is going to be this awesome cat burglar scene. And, they make such lame use of any of those like potentially important skills later in the movie is I think really sad. Like she just becomes, I, I can't imagine like you imagine getting the call and being like, okay, I think we, we you're going to get the mission impossible too. And, and it is to speak to something contemporary to what we're doing. It's the equivalent of saying, okay, Jeremy Renner, you're an Avenger. And also you're a bad guy for most of the first big movie, right? Like <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's not great use of this. What could have been such an awesome character. She's just a pawn. Yeah. As somebody who's quote, part of the team, 
Yeah, she's not part of the, the team. The only way they use her is your your job is to infiltrate and pretend you're you're returning to him as his former lover. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a totally 90s thing, right? Like there there are some pieces of this movie that feel to me particularly dated. But I'm wondering if just like if we were still just okay bringing in this sort of um like just casting for sexuality still in the year 2000. It definitely feels that way. Like there's just especially, you know, um Tendiwe Newton who had I think right before this, I believe she did Beloved, which was a really fascinating performance. It's it's a film that works in some aspects, doesn't work in others, but wow, talk about a film that came out it's like, wow, you were fantastic in that film. And then to jump from that directly into this film, it's like, mm, boy, they really didn't find a way to use her well. Mm-hmm. It's very unfortunate. And so that's, I think, one of the real frustrating things with the way that she was put into this film. It just, it's very, I don't know, it just, it doesn't do anything useful with her. But again, like, this is a film that also doesn't do much with the team. Like, Ving Rames is back, which is great, but then also... How many people ever say, oh, remember Billy? Billy Baird? <laughs> right, right. Where's, where's he you, in the later Mission Impossible I, films? Well, look, I, I kept thinking about this because, you know, you feel like, at least with the gift of hindsight, you can feel like what they were going for in terms of building the ultimate team. And that's both on the production side. Obviously, he, he gets the Macquarie thing, and that feels like a team now on the production side. And then <laughs> we end up with, Billy Baird's in the field, and now Billy Baird's gone, and Simon Pegg is a straight-up regular uh, from here on out, right? Like, that just feels like they found the team. They found what they wanted in in who the team is going to be. Yeah, I just, I wonder if John Paulson, who plays Billy, is just like, I was there. I could have been. I could have been. I should have been, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, he's, I don't know, I feel like even Cruz recognizes this is the film no one wants to see characters returning from like you know we talked about last week how kittredge is coming back for the both parts of dead reckoning this is one where other than ethan hunt and luther nobody else from this film has ever returned to the stories and i just don't foresee it and i think billy i i don't know for me it's just like well yeah because he's a kind of a snooze of like this is this is a guy who's also like one of these super spies who's part of the team like i just I don't know. Other than being able to fly a helicopter, it's just like I just I don't see it with this guy. I I don't really see it either. They didn't they, they didn't do enough with him, and you don't see Anthony Hopkins saying, you know, yeah, I'd like to be a staple in in the Mission Impossible movies after this one. I until you had reminded me last week that we were going to see Anthony Hopkins in this movie, I had not even remembered he was in it, and he has the best line in the movie, like the best written awesome line in the movie. So, yeah, crazy crazy that we that we get here and actually they had asked ian uh, mckellen to play that role uh, mission <laughs> commander swanbeck but he's just like nah, no thanks uh, i think that's uh, speaks to the probably the the script and the story and everything well let's let's talk about our baddies and what they were up to right doug ray scott is uh, plays part of sean ambrose as you said sean ambrose is the the former imf agent and is stealing these two drugs he's it's a black market drug thing there's the drug and the cure the virus and the cure and he's out to get it and he's very diabolical 
and you can tell because he sneers a lot. What do you think of Doug Ray Scott? There, there are reasons that I just feel like Doug Ray Scott doesn't end up in um, more interesting projects. I mean, he has been in stuff I like. Like, I really liked him in Ever After. I thought that was a, a sweet little Cinderella story. Agreed. But largely, when I see him in projects, I am like, oh, yeah, it's him. Like, I just, I'm never very excited uh, by him as a performer. And I think, I don't know, maybe it's because oftentimes people aren't using him well. And this is a film where I just, I'm like, I just don't feel they're using him very well. I just find him a snooze of a villain. And I also, uh, just as a side note, I really struggle with, I mean, the mask work is what it is, but then they have these little things that you put onto your voice box to change how you speak. But I'm like, but does it change the accent? Like yeah, that drives me nuts. Why cast a guy with such such a strong Scottish brogue that <laughs> I, I just can't get past the fact that his accent changes to an American accent with that thing on his throat. The thing is, I don't actually mind the tech, right? I don't mind it. No. I can get, I can willingly suspend that particular bit of disbelief, but you're right about the accent part. It just, it's bonkers, and you never get a sense that in, that either of anybody who wears a mask in this movie, and did you do a count just as an aside of how many mask swaps we do? In this movie? Let's see, I didn't, but it was, I don't know, I don't think it's that many. Is it only, like, three? Well, Ambrose does it, he wears Ethan twice. Uh-huh. Stamp wears the Ethan mask right as he's killed. There's, there, that's three. Ethan wears both a Stamp mask and a Nekhorovich mask. So there's five in this movie. Yeah, you're right, right? you're right. This is the highest amount of mask wearing in any Mission Impossible movie. So, Dead Reckoning, you've got, uh, you're, I'm looking at you, we'll see what you got. <laughs> anyway, not once did we get a sense of any of the actors trying to change their voice as their accent, right? You never get that. They just, they just, it just happened. And I did not like that. I really like the idea of this thing they can put on their throat because it works as effectively as the plot needs it to work. And that's great. And I think it does it much more effectively in the next movie because it's, it's, uh, it's just a little cleaner and they don't have anybody with such thick accents that, that make it unbelievable. I think you're right. The accent is the thing that, that sort of breaks it here. I also, um, you know, when we're talking about the villain here, and again, Doug Ray Scott is Ambrose. We also have to talk about Stamp, Hugh Stamp, played by Richard Roxburgh, who I much prefer in uh, Moulin Rouge as the Duke. Um, that is, I think, it was so good. My, so possibly good. my favorite uh, favorite thing that he's ever done. Like, but how does it end? I don't know. I just I love him yeah. in that role. He's clearly having a wonderful time. But I have to say, like, this film feels so much like there there is this like unspoken gay love story between stamp and ambrose like through the whole thing like i just i think that it's it plays so funny and if you watch it that way like it totally feels like it's there all the way through to stamp getting killed by ambrose's hand and then the mask reveal and then like that fantastic scream that he does it's like there really is this like this tragic gay love story that's going on here you know stamp is clearly jealous that uh that naya is back in the picture because he doesn't get ambrose to himself anymore more like it's just uh, it really feels like there is this strange uh, unspoken love triangle going on in this story that i kind of prefer to read it that way because it actually makes for a more interesting film 
I think so too. The thing I struggle with, uh, I, I struggle with the whole time is that I like Richard Roxborough so much more than Doug Ray Scott in that role. And I kept thinking they should just swap. Like really, the, it, Roxburgh should have been the Ambrose. I, I think he just has a better look for it, has certainly has a better uh, accent for it, uh, all of it. Like I just, I prefer his performance. I don't know what accent he was trying to do in this film. South though. African. Is that what he, he was, was trying doing? to do? South African, and he's an Australian. Yeah, and um, but obviously he has a, a hell of a Brit too, uh, from which we know from uh, Moulin Rouge. It's a funny kind of affected um, accent that he uses there. Like he's just, I think he's he's really great, uh, and I would have uh, preferred him vastly in that central villain role. And uh, let's not forget, uh, Brendan Gleeson is in this movie as well. What? Yeah, which I had forgotten. <laughs> Completely Crazy. spaced the fact that there that he was in this. Also, isn't it funny? Like I was I don't know what to make of the the whole thing that they try to pull over on him like it was all just a dream. None of that really happened. Like the whole thing <laughs> of like gassing him, making him think he's been injected with this thing to get all this information from him only to have him wake up in his limo again like, "Oh, I'm here. Jeez, what are you, you know, what happened?" I I'm like, hmm, is that like, I just don't know what to make of that. It was like the strangest setup for this part of the story that just, I don't know. I guess it was, I guess it was fun. Uh, I don't know. It, was it fun? Or was it just a thing? Like we, we think that people really love the opening sequence of Mission Impossible, uh, where, you know, we planted this dead person, we built this fake stage and we're, we're faking it and all that stuff. I, it was, it felt like we're going to do something to a kidnapped, to a prisoner here and make them think one thing when one, another thing is happening. Right. Right. Yeah, when you see Renee Serbeja's character walk back in and um yes. It, it, yeah, that whole setup. I'm like it, it's fun, but I do think that this franchise will do it much better later. For sure. For sure, for sure. So, okay. Uh, one other quick we, we have another henchman that is an absolute face. I think we've talked about William Mapo there. Oh, I don't. Well, I, I don't know if we have, but I, I mean, absolutely, he's worth talking about because, of course, he's Tom Cruise's cousin. Who, um, I, but I just need to know: to does see. he have any lines in this movie? He does. Yeah, remember. he speaks. Does yeah. he speak? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, like he's he is just uh, present. I uh, really, really love this actor, and I love his. Uh, I loved him in Lost. Like he was, uh, he was great in in his run in Lost. So I I don't know I uh, it, it felt like he was he was placed but you're right as a as Tom Cruise's cousin feels like I I don't know he should have been the part anyway I think he could have played one of the more senior villains than just kind of nerd in a chair with the computer I mean I we may have mentioned him when we talked about Born on the Fourth of July because he is um, in the platoon there uh, he does pop up a lot in projects that he's doing with his cousin, like he was in Magnolia, he's in this, he's in Minority Report. Uh, so it is one of those things where, like, he's, he's just kind of like, uh, I don't actually, I don't know if he's done much after that with uh, with Cruz, but he certainly is somebody who's he's been in a lot of stuff, a lot of TV, you know, certainly somebody who does keep busy in a lot of smaller things. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. You know, one thing one thing we haven't mentioned, but in the scope of Doug Ray Scott, it, it is important just to note that thanks to this movie and an accident that he has uh, with the motorcycle stunts that we have later in the film, that is why we ended up getting uh, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine in X-Men, because uh, Doug Ray Scott was actually meant to play that part but uh, had to drop out after he was healing from his injuries from this film. Just cannot stress what a happy accident that was. <laughs> it's like, I just, right? It's just like, oh, thank All due respect goodness. to Doug Ray Scott, right? Seriously, all due respect to Doug Ray Scott. I feel like we got the, we got the Wolverine we deserved. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. What else? I mean, is there anything else about the, uh, the stunt sequences or... Well, you know, I mean, we talked about the we we've already talked about the the rock climbing sequence, right? That was that was big and important and a central piece for for Cruz. We yep, setting up what he does in, through the rest yep, of the franchise. Yep. Obviously, we really like that. Uh, the driving sequence we talked about. The next major, like the the next major centerpiece is the the break into biocide. He repels, he jumps out of the, or he doesn't jump, he hangs out of the helicopter and there is a ticking clock because Luther has to open the vents, right? And Cruz has to slide between the vent blades, rappel down, and we actually, I think we get another of demonstration of Tom Cruise's incredible core strength hanging flat on this rappelling line. And that just feels like, you just are you just ripping off yourself, man? We know you have strong abs. Like, it's okay. Like, we've done a lot of good stuff, but this one just felt uh, a bit uh, redundant. And then they get the, that's now he's in Biosite. And it was funny because they did that shot the first time and Tom Cruise came down and, and did, you know, did his landing right over the ground and all that stuff. And and John Woo was so nervous. He's like, great, print. All right, let's move on. And Tom Cruise was like, wait, wait, shouldn't we do it again? And just make sure John Woo was so nervous about doing it again because he didn't want his actor to get hurt. I, I think that this was new to him to be working with somebody in this capacity who is not going to be having a stunt person for all these scenes. And so yeah. I was really afraid to do it. And I think that speaks largely to what Tom Cruise was doing here, because uh, then you read, the, you you hear the stories and you see the footage of the stuff going on with the knife blade later in the film. Yes, extraordinary, right? Extraordinary. I swore that that was CG, and this, you know, to the detriment of the way that they chose to shoot that sequence, we're so close. And I granted, I understand we want to be close in on his eye in that moment to see it, but. What we get of the blade, it just ends up looking CG. It doesn't look like a real knife blade. And I think they could have found a better way to shoot that or like shoot shoot wider and then like push in on it or something so we can really see that this is a real blade. Like you lose the fact that it's a real blade because I watched that and I'm like, oh, CG knife blade. Then I, I was watching the behind the scenes. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't realize that it was real. And um, that's and really clever, yeah. clever yeah. stunt work, right? The, the, you know, how they made it so that he could put force on the blade and keep, keep Tom's eye protected. That's, that was really clever. Yeah, with it like wired in so yeah. that it could not go any farther than the point that it had. But still, I mean, just. But I mean, just imagine, like, just the slightest bit. Do your, does your skull ever swell? Like, I don't know, from heat. Does your skull change size? <laughs> I just kept thinking, that's so close. Like, what if his skull was swollen and it, they miscalculated? Or a tectonic plate underneath his head shifted 
and with it the wire pushed his stretches. Head. I mean, there's, there's or the too wire many stretches, things. wire yeah. stretch. There's too there's many. Too many yeah, things. It was yeah. Crazy. It was crazy. But but to the point, to that point, like to the detriment of the way it was shot. And I think going back to this, to repelling into the into the biosite facility. But did you ever watch the it was uh, Timothy Hutton? It was his uh, the show Leverage. I don't remember what network it was on Showtime or something. But did you ever see any Leverage? No. For most of its run, it was a best in class team burglary show. Right. It was it was best in class for what it was on TV. It was a really fun popcorn show about charismatic, fun people doing fun stuff. But it was a, a weekly series. And th- with those limitations come limitations in production and stunts and everything. And so you kind of could feel it when they were shooting around certain things to make it look a certain way. It was fine, but you get it. It was it was a great show for what it was. And I I think the biggest problem I have with Mission Impossible 2 is this is a multi-million dollar, two-hour-plus event film, and the last act feels every bit like one of the better episodes of Leverage, the show. And it just, it, it doesn't feel presented cinematically to me. It doesn't feel epic. And I feel like they had an opportunity to really create something epic. And when they cr- go to all that work to create those fantastic rigs for the knife, for all of that... And that doesn't feel epic to me. You know, it it feels like a, a show of the week. That's, I think, a lot of the stuff that's going on with this film. Yes, it's a it's a great stunt that they're like they're accomplishing in a really interesting way, but it doesn't have the Mission Impossible scope that I really enjoy so much, where these things just feel bigger than life. And, I'm, and to that end, I I understand like they probably are competing with things like. James Bond and right around this time we're going to start getting the Bourne films and and you get these big spy films with big action sequences and yes there's that competition and so they're trying to do stuff that feels a little bit different not just these you know massive scenes and sequences but still just the fact that now it's just like it's basically a lover's spat on motorbikes is what we end up getting with the end of this <laughs> film it just it just doesn't feel like it's carrying any interesting weight and that's, I think, why I largely – and it's funny because it has kind of the scope of a, a Bond or a born with, like, trying to get this virus before uh, it can get sold on the black market for millions and and uh, potentially create a global pandemic. It just doesn't feel big. And, like, even with Naya getting – injecting herself and them dumping her off in the middle of Sydney to potentially start the spread of this thing, it's like, I never feel that. Like, I never feel like – Suddenly, the globe is being threatened. And that, I think, is one of the things about this film that always feels somehow it was scripted poorly because I'm like, how am I not feeling like there is this big potential global disaster that's about to happen? It just never it always comes across as two lovers having a spat or two, you know, uh, two people fighting over the same woman. There is a a sequence where uh, Ambrose actually says, drop her off in the heart of Sydney, right? He says, go drop her off in the heart of Sydney. And the next time we see her, she's standing like on the hill in a suburb looking over Sydney proper. And it's really far away. Like, did they like that is I don't know if that's a script problem or an editing problem, but she's alone. She's been dropped off. She's stumbling about. But she's not in the heart of Sydney. Or if she is, it's not a heart of Sydney that they ever give me scope and and uh, any sort of, of sense of geography that she is in a threatening place. It looks like she's in a park, like she's not in a super threatening location. Right. That's the, like we lose her from the story. And we needed to have if if the intent was 
for her to make this decision, I need to get away from the city center so that I can kill myself before this virus spreads to the population. Like, they never give us that. That's what we needed to have. And so all of that takes place off screen where we actually have agency with the character of Naya who says what I just said. I have to get out of the city so that nobody gets this disease. I have to go kill myself. I have to go throw myself off a cliff. I'm about to die. Whatever it is. We don't get that. They drop her completely from the story. And this just goes, again, all we've been saying earlier about the issues with the Naya character. And it's like here, it's like they don't give us any of that. We just suddenly cut to her on a cliffside, you know, like debating, am I going to throw myself off or not? And it's just, it's it's the weirdest way to to take that story. And again, they're removing all of the potential threat by doing that. Yeah. What's your, so uh, Brandon Braga and Ron Moore are behind the story of this thing, even though Robert Town wrote the the actual screenplay. Do you have a sense of how they ended up with this credit? I don't, but I am curious why they were chosen, uh, because largely they're Star Trek, uh, at this point in time, Star Trek writers and TV writers. You know, I mean, I mean, they had been involved, uh, or at least uh, maybe not both of them, but I know uh, Ronald Moore had. I mean, we talked about it in our Star Trek series. I mean, he had written Generations yes. and First Contact before this, um, along with a bunch of TV. But it's like, why then are these people the ones that you task to work on the story for this? Like, I, I just don't know if I see in their history of writing. Something that says, oh, they would be perfect for a big spy film. And it, it on, honestly made me think maybe there was a maybe there was an unfinished or an unproduced Star Trek script that was about, you know, Bellerophon. And it, like you can kind of see how this would end up like this could have been shoehorned into Mission Impossible mm-hmm. because, I, you know, I think I'm I, it's fair to say I'm hot and cold on on Ron Moore, but more hot. Like, I like his sci-fi stuff, and I think his stuff, you know, the the stuff he's written for All Mankind, you know, he is some of his very best, like, career work. He's just, it, it's really great. And I wonder in what universe it would have, uh, we would have ended up had he actually written the, the screenplay for this thing. Like, I wonder what, like, what what were the dynamics at work that ended up with Robert Town doing this thing? I, I'm curious. Well, I mean, Town worked on the first one, and so my my hunch is, yeah, it was the relationship that Cruz had formed with him that led him to continue on in this one. I just because these two are credited with the story. Uh, to your point, it does make me wonder: like, was it first Moore and and Braga that were brought on to write the script, and it wasn't exactly going the right way? So Cruz returned to Town and said, "You know what." We really need you, Robert. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right, right. I just don't know. Yes. Yeah. Anything else hot? Uh, no, I think that's about it. So, um, well, we will be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Jakob Pietra, Soriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds the stats for all the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, and imdb.com, oh, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.
we got to talk about awards. Oh, yeah. This film did actually get a few nominations. In our member pre-show chat at the start of this, we did already talk about the Taurus Awards, the World Stunt Awards, because this film did win two for Best Stunt Coordinator and, and or Second Unit Director for an Action Sequence and Best Stunt Coordinator and or Second Unit Director, director for a Feature Film. But there uh, were also... 12 other wins with 20 other nominations. And some of them are like this. The Razzie Awards. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, of course, this film was nominated for Worst Remaker Sequel up against Get Carter, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, The Flintstones, and Viva Rock Vegas, and Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, which is the one that ended up winning the Worst Picture. And Tendi Way Newton was nominated for Worst Supporting Actress, but lost to Kelly Preston in Battlefield Earth, everybody's mm. favorite, favorite film. Mm-mm. This film also was nominated at the Motion Picture Sound Editors, their Golden Reel Awards. It was nominated for Best Sound Editing, Sound Effects, and Foley in a domestic feature film, but lost to Gladiator, which certainly makes sense. Uh, at the uh, NAACP Image Awards, this film was nominated for a few uh, outstanding supporting actor in a motion picture. Ving Rhames was nominated, but lost to Blair Underwood in Rules of, of Engagement. And Tandiway Newton was nominated, but lost to Alfre Woodard, who we've talked about in Love and Basketball. Fantastic film. For sure. So, yeah, I mean, it it did get some, and, you know, some of it's like the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards and the MTV Movie and TV Awards, things like that. Um, so, but nothing super exciting. Well, I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking, goodness, I don't have a high, a very high opinion of this movie. Uh, I wonder how the third movie ever ended up getting made. And I think we turn to the budget, to the box office. Yeah, John Woo's been on the franchise, got a big budget boost, $125 million or $220 million in today's dollars. Again, the movie opened Wednesday before Memorial Day, May 24th, 2000, opposite Shanghai Noon. Like last time, this one took the number one spot, bumping Dinosaur. This stayed in the top ten for seven weeks and went on to become the highest grossing film of the year, beating out Gladiator, Castaway, What Women Want, and Dinosaur, which round out the top five. Mission Impossible 2 went on to earn $215.4 million domestically and $334.2 million internationally for a total gross of $967.3 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finish minute of just over $6 million. Not quite as good as the first, but still a great success. You know, uh, this is one of those movies that that I think we put in our list of, of not as good as the sum of its parts. Um, this is a movie where I, I think Tandiwe Newton is a, a fantastic performer, and I think it could have made a great addition to this movie and was poorly used. I think we have a set of miscast but and, and misused villains. I think we have some fantastical fight sequences that that just don't feel as grounded to the Mission Impossible universe. There are a lot of little pieces that sort of like paper cuts that pull this movie apart for me, even though I like I generally like everybody who's involved. And so, you know, it it, it is what it is, but it is it is for sure my least favorite Mission Impossible movie. It does make me wonder, you know, John Woo's original cut of the film when he submitted it was three and a half hours long and the studio required it to be two hours so they cut a lot it does make me wonder if there is a longer version of this that actually would become a better film 
I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, some of the John Woo stuff, the John Woo isms in this film just don't work for me. Like all of his slow-mo, all of the doves, like those things are just like, it just doesn't play as well as it does in other of his films. And so I don't know if bigger would be better for this particular one, but it certainly makes me curious. And I just, I, I can't imagine this is a film that they would ever return to, uh, to give us a longer cut of. So we should start the hashtag release the woo cut. Um, let somebody else start it. <laughs> I'll watch it if it comes out. But I, I, you drop the doves. I feel like we need to just say a word on the doves because it's such a signature thing for Wu. Why are doves in the tunnel? Do doves live in tunnels or the bunker? I, you know, I, I don't know. It's one of those things. Like, why do why do birds end up roosting in uh, abandoned you know buildings? It's like I think they're just there because they need a space to nest, and it's just yeah. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Well, I just don't. All right. Questions we'll never know. Ethan always right. gets his doves. Okay. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, J.J. Abrams' Mission Impossible 3. Who are you? You have a, you have a wife, girlfriend... Whoever she is, I'm going to find her. I'm going to hurt her. And then I'm going to kill you right in front of her. Andy, you've heard of Letterboxd. It's our favorite social media network for movie lovers. And, uh, you know, it's free for everyone. You can go in, you can create your watch list, you can start reviewing movies, share your reviews, read other people's reviews, uh, all of that stuff. And, you know, we don't really talk about this, but I use it as the place where I figure out when movies are coming out on which services, because you can tie your services to it and see like, oh, this movie is now available for me to watch on my favorite streaming service, which is Quibi. And um, so... You can do that, but if you really want to remove ads and support the the uh, Kiwi team that is making Letterboxd, you should upgrade, get rid of all those ads, pay a few bucks a month, and uh, you can do it through the next reel by using the code NEXTREEL at checkout when you upgrade to your pro or patron account, and that'll take 20% off your fee. Uh, it works for renewals as well. It's really, really great. Andy, uh, is this a, uh, what, what would you say, four stars, quibbles? Oh, you! Maybe no heart. You're you? funny. Oh, I'm such a card. Uh, this mm-hmm. film is. Uh, I mean, I watched all of these back when I was doing my Tom Cruise uh, chronological watch of all of his films, and it didn't fare well 
then, and it still doesn't fare well now. I gave it one and a half at that time, and I'm still going to put it at one and a half. No heart for this film. Mm. Just don't like it. Oh, man, this puts me in a rough space. Um, I don't think it's a, I, I don't think it's a one star movie for me, uh, if only because of some of the principal stunt um, uh, and action sequences, um, you know, crews and rock climbing. Maybe there's a full star for cruise rock climbing. I think that's really cool. And don't forget, we didn't talk about your mission. Should you choose to accept it on the Oakleys? That that feels like a thing. Right. That is of of the year 2000 and uh, and the the throw, the hair. There's a lot of stuff that feels the hair. Oh, God, that luscious, those luscious locks. I think it's a uh, I think it's going to be a, a two star movie for me. And wow. All right. Yeah. We'll see. Kind of where's it lands. Two stars. That'll round out to one and three quarters, which will will round up to two stars over in our letterbox account. Uh, remember, you can go to thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. And you can also go to thenextreel.com slash membership and learn about our membership, where you can get uh, ad-free episodes early, get all sorts of member bonus episodes, all sorts of good stuff. So check that out there. Uh, so what did you think about Mission Impossible 2? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd give it handy As Letterboxd always doeth Did you find any gems? Did you mine any gems in the dark, dark, dark caverns of Letterboxd? Uh, well, I did see Jeff Sticks. Speaking of gems, the five-star diamond Tom Cruise is what he called it, which is funny. But no, I, I, other than that, I have I have something else. I have a two-star. I went I went to two-star, but only because I think Patrick Willems uh, really summarizes the last hour of our conversation. It's cool how this movie does something totally different from the first one, but also almost every choice it makes is a bad one. <laughs> cool doves, though. <laughs> dying patrick willems nice work yeah nice what do you got well i've got a five star by ashley dean who says this tom's hair carried the whole movie <laughs> oh did it ever ashley did it ever uh, uh thanks thanks so much letterboxd <laughs>